0: In October of 2018, a group of St. Louis University's graduate students disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while researching the connection between rhetoric, composition, and witchcraft. Since then, only these episodes of Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina have been found. The Witchcraft of Writing.
1: Thrice the brinded cat hath mewed. Thrice and once the hedge pig whined. cries, cries, 'tis time, tis time.' Round about the cauldron go,
2: In the poisoned entrails throw. Toad that under cold stone, Days and nights has thirty-one. Sweltered venom sleeping got, Boil thou first at the thee charmed pot.
1: Double double, 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 toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron, cauldron bubble. bubble.
3: Fillet of a fenny snake, In the cauldron boil and bake eye of newt and toe of frog, will of bat and tongue of dog. Adder's fork and blind worms sting, lizard's leg and owlet's wing, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth boil and bubble. Double, 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 toil and trouble, trouble, fire fire, burn and cauldron cauldron, bubble.
1: Scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, witch's mummy, maw and gulf of the ravened salt sea shark, root of hemlock digged in the dark, slivered in the moon's eclipse nose of turk and tartar's lips finger of birth strangled babe ditch delivered by a drab make the gruel thick and slab add thereto a tiger's chadron for the ingredients of our cauldron double double double, toil and trouble trouble, fire burn and cauldron cauldron bubble. bubble
3: cool it with a baboon's blood then the charm is firm and good
4: Oh, well done. I commend your pains, and everyone shall share the gains. And now, about the cauldron sing like elves and fairies in a ring, enchanting all that you put in.
3: By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes.
0: I call this meeting of the Midnight Society to order. For a final Halloween special of the Witchcraft of Writing for Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, I'm Byron Gilman Hernandez, a student of Rhetoric. To my right...
1: I'm Amy Nelson, I study Medieval and Early Modern English Literature. I'm Vanessa
3: Kemna, I study Medieval and Celtic Literature. I'm Natalie Whitaker, I study Early Medieval Literature.
4: I'm Carol Hogan Downey, I study Irish and British Literature of the 19th Century.
0: We're gathered here today to talk about, from our various disciplines, the relationship between magic and rituals, and the various Cold and other implications that bring for it. Because in ritual, everything matters. Indeed, our sixth contributor to here is the fire you can hear in the background, our burning bonfire, our bugs, the wind through the autumn leaves, and the bug zapper, as well as three dogs you may or may not see and hear later tonight. And this aspect of how everything here present matters makes us think about ritual because in a ritual it's dependent on say the shape of the room or the cave is taken in the time of day you produce the ritual in where the moon is and the stars in the sky but to talk a little bit more about that specifically uh amy i thought you had some things to say
1: so to sort of dive into an interminably vast topic like ritual just head first um yeah. I think the way that you've introduced us to the sort of concept of ritual is really useful. Um, Rituals can be said to sort of be themselves the content of the matter that you've been sort of introducing us to, so it's not really as much about what the ritual accomplishes often, it's about what takes place during the process itself. So rituals historically are often Uh, as Byron mentioned, sort of geared toward seasonal specificities or locations or other types of necessary variables um, and involve sort of gestures, objects, people, actions, sort of different types of content but that's all very prescribed and that's very much um, not changeable. So rituals can be used to uh, sort of justify things like traditions or perhaps create myths, or do all sorts of things that need a foundation and need a reason. So if we're thinking of ritual as, uh, in the broadest sense, as sort of something that can help tie together the needs and wants of a community, um, we can think about them as far as religious rituals go, um, or even, I guess, prior to religious rituals. rituals that have um, sort of the problematic of the sacred and the profane involved. So where we're trying to purify someone or something, you can have sacrifice in a ritual where stuff gets a little messier. But the whole kind of gist is that there's got to be this sequence that we adhere to for a purpose. Almost never, I would probably say, does it actually matter what we're doing in the ritual, so long as everyone involved believes that it counts and believes in its sort of transformative power.
0: Now, as our early modernist present and opening with a lines, some lines from Macbeth, talking about ritual, you do talk about it in this very broad sense, but I am interested, as this is the witchcraft of writing, that narrow sense, that sense of witches. You talked a little bit, um, before we recorded today, about uh, King James.
1: Oh right. <laughs> he was not the biggest fan of witchcraft. He wrote a whole treatise against it. So, uh, you know, I think it's one of the Freudian, um, uh, what is it? The methods of trying to, um, oh my god, what's the word, you guys? We're gonna cut this apart. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, everything matters. Not diversion. Projection?
1: No, old projections, one of them. Lost it. Defense mechanisms, there it is. Um, now I don't remember what I was gonna say about defense mechanisms, but, Freudian. um. Freudian. We'll also, I don't know if it's, like, specifically... Anyway, you now I, I lost my train of thought. What was your question?
0: Well, I just felt we could talk, move to talking more specifically witches, about witches.
1: King James, right? So, uh, right, <laughs> right. So, typically, when you write a treatise against something, you might be said to have a bit of an obsession about it, especially when you're the king of, you know, an entire section of the Western world. But be that as it may, witches are sort of always, uh, or at least the stories of witches are always told with an element of ritual. Um, sort of implicated in how they exist as witches, right? So spells and everything that we kind of associate with witches is all very ritualistic um, and there's a sort of feminine element that we can throw into too. The sort of fear of the feminine often becomes something that is f- ritualized or fixed through rituals, so purification rituals and things like that uh, are often in response to fear of feminine mystique and sexual power among other great
0: qualities, obviously.
2: Yeah, so uh, jumping off from uh, what Amy was saying about the profane and the sacred, um, it reminded me of um, a situation in Missouri, here where we are, um, in the late 19th century. um, There was a Neoplatonist named... Thomas Johnson, who was a well-known lawyer, very successful, uh, in Osceola, Missouri. And through circumstances, (laughs) he became the president of the American chapter of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, um, which started out in England, but uh, then kind of uh, moved over here. Um, And one of the interesting things about their occult um, <laughs> um, set up is that they were really looking for community, you could argue, and they did this a lot through language um, by forming reading groups and book sharing groups. So that was one of the more what you might argue is banal, um, more typical kind of thing that you would see in, um, in the 19th century. But on the other side, um, they also like to have orgies. So they there was a lot of elements of loneliness that was a part of, just for example, Thomas Johnson's life as a very erudite um, armchair academic um, who published a lot on Neoplatonist thoughts, who built a library of thousands and thousands of early modern texts. Um, <laughs> who basically did, had a wife who didn't understand him and who did not allow him to even have his books in the house anymore. Um, and so using this this ritual, um, a sexualized ritual um, of orgies with those in his community of Luxor, um, he was able to take something that would normally be seen as profane and turn it into something that was sacred, something that was actually possibly even valued by the community rather than looked down upon.
0: And that's interesting in some of the context of what uh, Amy was originally talking about, about the idea of like, it's not necessarily so much the specific practices that's what's important, but so much of it is a communal participation, and that uh, your emphasis is loneliness Mm. as like a driving force in this. Do you know more about like uh, the extent of this Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor? Um, people who've listened to an earlier Witchcraft of Writing episode know Carol talking about the Hermetic, uh, was that Brotherhood or Order?
3: Order, okay, the Golden Order Order,
0: the Golden Dawn, and I'm the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor would have a similar format. But if you could tell us more about that,
2: I'm not as familiar with the Golden Dawn. Um, But the way that the uh, Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor kind of started up was it was in England and it was um, really by this man named Max Theon who had a history of being a con man. And that's actually what ended up kind of becoming its downfall in later years. So it really only had um, a strong, Life. I'm not quite sure how else to say it. It it really only thrived in England um, for about four or five years and it hopped over to America somewhat um, and had a little bit more longevity primarily because so many of the followers were actually in rural communities so in a way it was more hidden, um, binding them together somewhat. through the reading networks and through their kind of illicit meetings and that sort of thing. And then based on the paperwork, and we don't have a lot of um, Thomas Johnson's papers, we have a lot because he burned and most of his stuff ended up being burned. So um, we don't have a lot of uh, the official papers after a certain point. Um, we only know through some Letters from recipients uh, that have been found in various collections um, that there was still a community into the early uh, 20th century. We're not sure to what extent it's still, it has not really been studied. I mean, there's only maybe one or two books, even very generally, on the topic because a lot of the papers are either missing or
1: just haven't been found yet uh, oh Oh no that just um, sort of uh, gave another um, idea gave me another idea similar to what I was saying before um, about community and the importance of rituals for forming communities but in that same vein rituals are also sort of mechanisms by which uh, exclusion exclusionary practices can be kind of justified, performed, whatever, um, as well as inclusionary. So in the sense of what the, uh, group you're talking about, um, was doing with their kind of orgiastic, uh, rituals in line with these reading groups. So sort of a very kind of austere practice next to this kind of, chaotic, frenzied, as I imagine an orgy, that would be not from experience, but (laughs) (laughs) the connotations are there. Um, It sort of allows there to be this kind of, if you're not with us, believing in this ritual, then you're against us, and you're excluded from whatever this mystical thing is that we've created. It doesn't need to be mystical, but it is mystical by nature
0: of the fact that others are not allowed into. That these arbitrary social practices are the means by which we create the insider precisely.
1: Think about all of the rituals you go through in America, in Christian America, like baptism, confirmation. I don't remember being baptized, but it was sure something I had to do as a kid. You know that my parents had to do. And think about too, like all of the political rituals that we have, as far as like when someone is sworn in, it's always on a Bible. It's never going to be on anything else because if it wasn't on a Bible, it wouldn't be. The effective graduation, <laughs> ceremonies. graduation mm-hmm. ceremony. I mean, all of our ceremonial rites and rituals are very I mean, much the embedded in into itself, our. In
3: Sans Bible is just the, the, the swearing in itself is a ritual.
1: Right, that's what I meant, and sort of, but the use of the Bible is Im- imperative for that ritual. You couldn't swear them in on our riverside right. that Riverside <laughs> Shakespeare, <laughs> because no one would think that meant anything. So there's like that belief element where mm-hmm. if anyone questions the use of this or that object or gesture or performance, then Calling into question the m- kind of yeah the mechanism in the ritual itself throws a uh, a wrench into a community or can at least
4: although um, you can if you aren't Christian and you ought- and you do follow another religion you use another religious book your religious book to be sworn in, in the United States
1: oh,
0: but we'll never elect a president who doesn't believe well, in not the Bible <laughs> <laughs> but not Richard the president. Nixon did swear in on a Bible because Quakers can't swear.
1: And that involves a Quaker ritual, though, of putting into play something that works for him, but that is still in sort of
0: interwoven into the idea of rituals. There's also a secular aspect. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. But like, as educators, all of us are teachers at (laughs) St. Louis University. Uh, A lot of our classes have a key ritual element. I mean, the means by which we collect. And uh, distribute grades takes something that is like knowledge production, is something that is very amorphous and difficult. And oftentimes, you hit into these weird little like uh, experiences. Like anyone who's ever been in a class, the moments where you really learn something, did that necessarily relate to you getting the A, which is the thing that actually ser- certifies the university that you get the credit on your transcript and the proof that you learned something. And that's something that stands out to me in ritual, is so much of it about like, these um, these formulaic mechanisms for things that are very social and very much oftentimes um, abstract.
1: And I think you're also right in the sense that rituals are sort of, um, not exclusively, but very often designed to move from point A to point B, whatever that means, so the transformative element is very much at work in what you're describing. So in any classroom, you're hoping for transformation, right? I mean, you can't states. can't guarantee it, but you're sort of hoping that all of your students are going to transform from their point A at the start of the semester to the point B uh, at the end of the semester, and we use ritual to enact that, or to at least enact that we think more efficiently.
2: Well, and I, one of the things that bothers me with that is that there's such a socioeconomic uh, aspect to ritual in general I yes. mean when we're talking about these occults they tended to be you were at least middle-class or or it's very or bougie yeah. It's, yeah exactly <laughs> it's it's very bougie and then we do we turn and we talk about um, uh, more secular forms of ritual and teaching at a college and what we expect of our students in a room and are they following this, this prescribed ritual and often we call it other things. It is a ritual. Um, we might call it like the game, like are they playing the game mm-hmm. correctly, you know, were they essentially trained in the way that we expect them to have been trained to be able to get an A in our class. And it's very elitist. And we're continuing to follow a ritual that's simply not fair and is exclusive, right? I mean, and to that
4: extent, even um, the kinds of language that traditionally we expect or that we've codified as academic prose or formal prose, um, I mean, just that there is something rote in ritual about, no, you cannot eat u- not merely um, the not using Contractions, which really <laughs> confuses me, because it's totally arbitrary. It's so arbitrary. We, everyone uses contractions all the time.
0: It's always striking when I get a student asking if they can use the first person in a paper. Yeah. Yes,
4: and yeah. I've had that conversation always. over and over. Just don't say I think, I feel, I believe, because that's what weakens it, and that's intriguing too, because that's also something that we've been taught as my students. Whenever I explain that you can say I argue that you need to make your claims and and make them strong. One of my students recently said, so what you want us to do is take an opinion and state it as fact. <laughs> and I was like, well, yes, but you're going to just be spending the rest of that paragraph and the rest of that essay, depending on where you're making that statement, proving that, it's proving that it is true, but yeah, you're supposed to present it as if it already is true.
3: I think their actual inclination is actually that what we are trying to train them to do in a lot of ways is to stop expressing a fact like an opinion because that's where that first person comes in as a problem. It's less the I and more the think-believe that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Well, and
1: one thing I find amusing to think about and also tragic uh, simultaneously is the sort of notion of undergraduate essay writing as a ritual in and of itself in that I remember when I was writing as an undergraduate any paper that was for a class which was not in the English department. So a history paper or a poli-sci paper or something that was a little bit outside of my comfort zone or wheelhouse or what have you I felt that I had to sort of set myself up in a way that was you know this kind of emotional preparation but also like okay get out your thesaurus so you know which words to use and you know a lot of them now are using like the Microsoft Word built-in thesaurus or whatever it is. Uh, but I think that a lot of them look at paper writing not as something that can actually be a learning experience but as something they have to fulfill step by step like there's the first and the, f- the second, third, fourth, and fifth paragraphs and no more and there's no I and there's no contraction and god forbid they deviate from any of these prescribed ritualized Did steps you play exactly yeah. and, and if they don't do it correctly they not only feel like they're not going to get a good grade on the paper whatever the kind of menial part of it is but they feel like they've Faltered in this ritual that has been ongoing for centuries, and they've misstepped in something that seems so kind of laid out for them as something that's like formulaic and not mm-hmm. able to be kind of you know changed at all in any way.
4: And I mean, in that, even down to the three part thesis, mm-hmm. which you know, they you know, I've had to have that conversation with students when I just recently had conferences, and you know, th- honestly, doing that in some ways your thesis loses its unification because you're going to need these paragraphs to support it and you can't just expect to always have three points to support this but there is this sense that it becomes more of a mystery more so very performative so very ritual I mean down to being in in some ways like the Macbeth that we just read I mean that all these weird ingredients that I don't know why they go in here I don't know why we have to do it this way but we have to do it this way and we have to say this thing at the end of every paragraph to move forward and um, there it there's it works like magic
1: rather than, you know. Or rather they think it's going to work like magic. Well, when really you know, there's a sort of lack of magic in the paper writing process that I think goes under <laughs> under discussed given that magic is not going to finish I this paper. It's much. sort of
3: like the, you know, we always talk about the old adage that you have to learn the rules to break them. And mm-hmm. I, I think a large part of our job is becoming to teach, to make sure that they are aware of the ritual in the first place so that if we are doing our job right, we shatter the
0: ritual. What's interesting from like, um, very first episode of these witchcraft of writing was uh bringing up uh plato and gorgias as these two um, attitudes of magic that occurs in um uh, jacqueline de romilly's uh magic and rhetoric in ancient greece and there's something about like even though plato was against uh gorgias as like a spellbinder as a sorcerer who could teach people here's the tricks to sorcery and uh using the, the language as rhetoric a lot of magical like um, culture that you'd get in these hermetic orders is extremely platonic. That it's um, that there's like these ideas of these pure forms, and that these there's this immaterial supernal world, and it kind of brings up the idea of like if you know the true name of a rock, if you know the true incantations, like if you put together all of these things, like why is a baboon's flood able to cool it, well some essential element of a baboon, and there's some like if you know the secret central knowledge, and you do things the right way, and it presents a world that is very formulaic, and very structured, and that if you learn the correct way to do things, you will always succeed if you do. And that's, I think, a lot of magical thought is very much concerned with, like, the idea that the universe has an underlying code.
1: And that we could crack (laughs) it. Well, that's, like, very uh, sort of something that's always struck me as interesting, I guess, or maybe amusing, better word. But in uh, sort of early medieval manuscripts, so, you know, maybe pre-11th century, pre-12th century, you'll find kind of combined in a sort of miscellany of texts, you know, incantations, truly charms, spells, for things like getting rid of a toothache. So things that we can do with real medicine now, but which they had no idea how to sort of cure medicinally at the time, we're going to just put it in a spell and we're gonna put it in a charm and then we're gonna get rid of that gout, we're gonna get rid of that nosebleed and that headache and all of these things. but interspersed with these charms and incantations are actual medicinal recipes and sort of, uh, I hate to say factually based, but things that today we could read and say, yeah that's still a recipe for this, you know, whatever it is. There's a chemical
0: in this plant. Right, exactly,
1: and like and we know that there's some truth to this even if they were a little off in maybe the administration or whatever, but the similarities are striking because you find order, as we've been sort of emphasizing, but order is important if not crucial, so you cannot put the baboon's blood in before the wolf's tooth, because then we don't know what's gonna happen, but it's gonna ruin it all, we're to start over, and then you have to kill all these other animals. <laughs> so I
2: seriously
4: just read, now you may made me think of two things, but the first, I just read an article about the use of sage uh, mm, sticks mm-hmm. burning the sage smudge things um, to clear out evil spirits things like that, but actually Fixes. there's some sort of, uh, I forget what it is, but it actually cleans the air. And so, the like it's just it fights off bacteria from growing in rooms and stuff. So there is something else that people are sensing um, going on. I've been
0: kind of weary about that kind of thinking necessarily because a lot of it tries to like recast that like you know these culture mm-hmm. cultural practices were like I don't want to say like inferior science, but like they're doing the best they could whereas like for a lot of it yeah there were like um, there were I'm sure like they could notice like certain elements emerge like that but it wasn't like you know um, like it seems kind of worrisome to me because it kind of in some ways like paints them as like if they just knew a little better they'd have done the science the way we do
4: well I think that yeah I agree Um, there is this sort of Sorry, you're making me think of this epistemic or epistemology involving feeling as a kind of knowing. And I was thinking about that earlier when I was talking about using statements like I feel and I believe. And um, there's this... Sorry. (laughs) um, I was thinking through while we were talking about formulas and feeling... And there's this binary that you know, develops, of something being very formulaic, just knowing how to crack the code, and um, something very
1: messy. The and rational and versus the irrational. Yeah, like I mean, I don't know everything. That works well it's like well the enough. Cartesian dualistic yeah. thinking that's just yeah. like embedded in everything we do. That right, really right, has right. no place in a lot of what we do, but it's useful right. and it's convenient and it's it tidies up the messy.
4: Right, but well, I mean it's, it's what's undergirding our saying things like no you shouldn't, use, I mean the original saying don't use first person because you don't want to bring a subjective perspective mm-hmm. into this even though that's just you know lying basically or pretending that it's not there but um, the way that in I mean for me in literature class right now but also in rhetoric classes too whenever you're teaching someone how to an- or when you're analyzing a text and um, working to build your own works the use of feeling as part of it and i was thinking about that the messiness of that and how it fits into the idea of witchcraft which to me um, a craft yes there's this sense of you are supposed to do these there are rules there are ways that you know there are procedures but there's also a level of and that might be just because we're post arts and crafts movement but there is this level of artistry to it this level of Feeling rather than knowing in those binaryistic
0: senses. Socrates, like whole, that was his whole argument with Gorgias. What is your craft? What is the thing? And he just like Gorgias, like I make arguments. And it's like, no, what is like a shoemaker makes shoes, a boat maker makes boats. What is your craft?
1: Well, in in that same sense, there's a way in which you can think about sort of in, I guess, all forms of media technically, but. Especially in perhaps um, in film uh, or any sort of media where you can hear the magic sort of taking place or being performed, you don't ever get a bored magic, whatever a magician, a witch or whatever. They're never they're never bored and they're never dawning never through broke. the spell. If anything, they're performing it above and over anything that would sound like reg- regular, with scare quotes. Um, regular speech. So, you know, when we're thinking about the Macbeth uh, witches, they're definitely not just sort of, like, mumbling to themselves, and now we have this wolf's tooth, and, like, oh, whatever, just, like, toss it in there. Like, it's all about that kind of artistry and the kind of bringing to it something singular, even though you're doing something that's purportedly universal. So that makes
4: me think, um, in our, our first episode uh, of this series, for the, the witchcraft of rhetoric, um, Byron and I were talking about the uh, Florence Farr's voice, is how we got onto it, the, the vibration that the um, hermetic order was really interested in, but that was sort of her claim to fame. And this 19th century obsession with uh, music and sound as vibrations, and so they were understanding that it was uh, sound waves vibrating within um, your ear and all of those parts, but there was still this association of music with emotion, and, I mean, obviously, it's like emotional expression, but you have the German school coming up, you have someone like Wagner coming up, that they're using, and Wagner especially, they're breaking a lot of the rules mm-hmm. that you know, have been established, but there's this association of what they're doing, partly because they're German, um, with, so they're, they're like just national um, identity figures happening here, but that it is using all of the emotion of music and what the Irish are missing, because there's also so much musical feeling, according to Matthew Arnold. Um, but the Germans, according to Arnold and others, would drive, put, put in there a science to it there's this like science to using
1: these things to overwhelm and
4: and it's expressing by impressing
1: however there is now like scientific evidence that shows that the part of our inner ear that registers the vibrations of crying so like babies crying or just any human crying uh is in some way the exact same, maybe it's frequency, I don't really know how to talk about sound science and technology, (laughs) but um, all symphonies have the same sort of uh, impact on the same part of our ear. So music and feeling and all of that is sort of not only, it's not given a kind of science, but it's actually built into us as something that we uh, take in scientifically in a way, I guess. Yeah,
0: because like, I don't want to say that crying is musical. Maybe you ignore it's... your crying, but <laughs> <laughs> what, what is music? I'm just. Yes. really bad you crying, guys? But uh, like, it does have like it's it's a rhythm and it's one of the things is that it's continuous. Like, a lot of, like, when Long says, what is a word, it is an event. Oh, yeah. That mm-hmm. it, it, it pops, in a way. But singing has a continuity. Crying, likewise, has that continuity. So, so
1: like, ululating is the same type of thing. And if, And if we're, like, talking about rituals, then thinking of morning rituals, morning as in fun- funereal, not mm-hmm. in the morning. Um, but morning, well, I guess it could happen in the morning, but morning in the morning. Um, <laughs> I got sidetracked. <laughs> Mourning rituals involve a whole, whole lot of very prescribed behavior, always gendered, not always the same in every culture, but always a gendered practice, weeping continuously, tearing your hair, beating your breast, tearing at your face, I mean all of these things come into play and are eventually considered, you know, not useful and a little bit um, distracting (laughs) for societies in mourning, but for most of You know, for most of Western civilization, morning rituals have been a key kind of mm, community-defining crux. Pretty much all over the whole whole entire planet, like there's not really more than one or two cultures where they've been found to not have morning rituals. I mean, that's uh,
4: and Anessa can also speak to this too. The um, in Ireland, the the Queenia, which is how you say Queen in Ireland. is is performed by women, mm-hmm. and not merely that it's just traditionally performed by the women who are mourning people. Often, there's a uh, traditionally you, you would hire oh, yeah. uh, the the yeah, Mina Queenia. Yeah,
3: yeah. If you didn't. You wanted professional level. Professional whalers. Yeah, professional grief. Yeah, and it's, um, they were
1: called the whale. But yeah, Anessa. The whaling women. They show up in the Knightsdale and the Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. beginning. Um,
3: but yeah, I mean, it's essentially you don't want you don't want a half baked performance. Uh, you want real and true and true grief and even when this faded out I mean we still you know the the concept of even just the Irish wake is still allowed um, a loud affair so that aspect of noise around mourning has not gone away
1: well that's, that's why the oh, sorry I was just
4: saying, it's also the um, the Queen too isn't this long slow dirge like sound it's it's uh, highly melismatic it is um, and with the mel- melismas the uh, moving around through several notes on one syllable um, can even almost sound frenetic. It's
1: highly charged.
4: Yes, it's very charged and strange. Um, Sing also not particularly has used it. Yeah.
1: Well, and so we're <laughs> thinking about how rituals, when disrupted or in some way challenged, can uh, that that process, that event, can sort of overthrow entire civilizations entire cultures if you think about uh like in europe and in england during the periods of the plague where suddenly morning rituals are no longer actually possible we're throwing all of these bodies as i think it was boccaccio who put it into the ground layered like lasagna which is a fun image to just marinate on but when you throw out rituals that have a sort of higher purpose, so like Byron was talking about the sort of, um, the spirituality, I guess, that can come into rituals, and you erase all of that for needs practical or, you know, whatever they are, uh, it can throw an entire nation or an entire continent just into tumult in a way that's fascinating and fun and tragic all at once.
0: Natalie, would you like to share, because we've been talking about these rituals of grief I know that you're particularly interested in less the sorrow aspect, but the, the wrathful aspect, especially like Grendel's mother. Uh, is there anything you might be able to add on that?
2: Yeah, that's, it's actually something that, um, as this discussion of mourning was going on, I was thinking about um, with this tradition of the, the women in elegy and women in lament. Um, I was reading the uh, Old English poem, The Wife's Lament, Recently, and it's traditionally seen as a lament. I think mean, it's in the title, um, and as this elegiac verse. But there is there is one line um, where the the wife is like lamenting the exile of her and her husband, and the, the societal shifting that's happening. Um, and she specifically mentions that she is angry, um, which very seldom happens actually in Old English, texts where they use a a word for anger um, when it comes to women. Often, uh, men are referred to as angry, but women are not. And she specifically says that she's angry, and then the next stanza um, says how she's not, how society doesn't allow for people to feel emotions, that you're supposed to stay strong, you're supposed to stay courageous, and yet inside is all this tumult. That's, that's essentially happening. Um, and I do think we see that with, with Grendel's uh, mother as well, Here's somebody who's just lost a child and whose response is not perhaps the typical response that you'd expect from a society to believe that women should be peace weavers, but is one where she goes into a meat hall and bites a guy's head off. Which, you know, I, I, I think can then take us into um, why um so many women now why there's so much interest now in uh uh, witchcraft Mm -hmm. and um that's that's through anger
0: oh sorry there's something that's really interesting to me with this aspect of anger is that we've got ritual as both this highly prescribed aspect that this is what like especially with this grief this is what you do when someone dies this is how you're supposed to behave Mm -hmm. And we also have, and we were talking about ritual as formula, and very kind of almost scientific and mathematical, you put up this much Batman's blood. There's also this sense in ritual, um, I mean, we started with this conversation about literal orgies. <laughs> and this, like, uh, in the very starting planning stages of the witchcraft of writing, talking with Carol about, um, there's this uh, Twitter thread that does World War Two in real time. If, had a tweet about um, recording when a group of British pagans did they dance naked under the moonlight to put a curse against Hitler and this yeah when we talk about like magical rituals how much of it is like you know um, either in a scientific aspect or in this eruptive uncontrollable
1: well and so something that you said about lament reminded me of just the fact that genre in and of itself is sort of a form of ritual that we are trying to sort of <coughs> see the ruptures in all the time but that which I think medieval literature does an outstanding job of showing us how rituals can be adhered to while also kind of well we poke holes in them so if you I mean I'm obviously going to talk about Pearl when you bring up the death of a child and we're talking about medieval literature so in that you know the longest uh, period of its initial kind of criticism was focused on, like, is it a elegy? Is it, you know, a consolation? Like, what is this poem? And what I think people still have a hard time recognizing or maybe even believing uh, is just the fact that, okay, there is no genre here that we're sticking to in every part of its kind of start to finish form, the ritual of an elegy, which I think you can sort of say exists. To some extent, in all in all of Western literature, but uh, back to what we were talking about—the Greeks and so forth. But it gets broken, and it gets added to, and it gets problematized. But I think if we're thinking about literature and rhetoric too, is then a support of that. But genre is a place that ritual gets. Now, kind of,
0: I think this conversation spawned. could go on. Like, and I think by bringing in, like you know, for European literature, in like, <laughs> British, and Irish literature. Of, like such an enormous period of time just kind of like just so much to talk about here. And I'd be interested in the future of like making this an annual thing and actually bringing in an even broader approach to it not just like you know further English literature aspects but also like you know talk about mathematicians about numerology bring in other people and talk about like the magical aspects of their fields because we're talking about like ritual as concept and all that. Uh, but also kind of a final note um, to talk about this specific ritual we have kind of conducted here um, with You know the setup and organization for all this We have an absolutely ludicrous recording setup of like five different microphones And I have no idea what this is gonna sound like in editing, but I'm also wondering what do I want to touch in editing like being interrupted by the dog yawning or trying to come over <laughs> for the microphone the trying to, the very specific hesitancies and whatnot, that this is a very kairotic. There's a big element of kairos and timing in here as we kind of move through this conversation and it becomes something that rather than trying to be prescribed and controlled and fix things so it's right, to leave this as something long and somewhat a little bit sprawling and a little bit complicated, but
1: I mean, if you were going to go against the ritual of a radio podcast or not radio podcast of any type of, I guess, auditory media where you have a sign on and then you have a sign off. I mean, you would like cut me off somewhere in this sentence (laughs) and that's the end of the podcast. (laughs) And you have a disruption of a ritual that we use sort of for the sake of convenience. Now, you know, the podcast is over, but doesn't really serve any function as far as, you know, being productive or being actually generative of anything. It just sort of adheres to our expectations. I mean, even the concept of introducing us all and specifically naming our
3: our, uh, our specialties. A is part of the ritual and B is something that if disrupted really takes this out of out of genre. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, but uh, I mean I may have cut that off just to go on Amy's ending note, but thank you all for being part of this. Thank you for being part of the witchcraft of writing and oh, well, thank everyone out there. Thank you for listening. Have a good evening. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series to share an assignment tool or even to pitch an interview please contact me byron gilman hernandez at byron.gilmanhernandez at slu.edu and remember to follow us on twitter at cai underscore lab thank you for listening